You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Iona Italia. I will be hosting the podcast solo this week. My guests today are Bradley Campbell, Associate Professor of Sociology at Cal State Los Angeles, and Jason Manning, a sociologist at West Virginia University. In their work, both Bradley and Jason focus on the sociology of violence, crime, law, morality, and conflict. Together, they are the authors of the book, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Welcome, Bradley and Jason. Bradley, would you like to begin by talking about the shift which the book traces from honor culture through dignity culture to victimhood culture? Uh, Yes. So um, when we started looking at what was happening on on campuses um, and seeing complaints about microaggressions, um, these small slights that were uh, supposed to cause great harm and um, and people, you know, bringing uh, attention to that and demanding safe spaces and, and things like that, we were trying to understand as sociologists of morality, what was going on. And what we um, start immediately thought about was other kinds of moral cultures and how some of um, what was happening on campuses compared. So we've studied violence a lot, both of us. So um, in the study of violence, there's a lot of discussion of honor and honor cultures and the role of honor in violence. Um, But honor cultures are um, um, cultures where there's a, a kind of moral status that has to do mainly with physical bravery, and people call that honor. Um, and, uh, you know, so in an honor culture, men might fight duels with one another. That's one example. And they, in these cultures, people who are, are concerned about their honor and pursuing honor are um, very touchy, uh, so very sensitive to slight, quick to see themselves as, a, uh, as uh, um, wronged and, and insulted. And um, the way they handle it is with a lot of times with violence, but certainly the idea is that you handle conflicts yourself. Um, but the, the, the idea is always that you're de- trying to demonstrate that you can handle your own conflicts, that, um, that you are tough and brave, and, and this is um, this kind of moral status called honor. And it's something that's very important to people. You lose this kind of status, and you can lose your standing in society. So it's not um, simply a matter of people... Um, being sensitive, it's it's a it's people operating um, in a certain kind of moral culture, and that often looks bizarre to modern people. Like, why do why do men go and fight duels? What's the you know if someone slights me, what uh, what does it accomplish for us to fire uh, guns at each other or something? Um, but it, in, in that culture, the idea is that it, it demonstrates that you belong um, among a certain group of people, that you have this kind of um, a moral status, honor. Um, mm, mm. The, the culture that replaced that was is, is what a lot of sociologists and um, historians have called dignity culture. So the idea was that as honor faded, um, dignity replaced it in modern Western societies. And so dignity was the idea that everybody has um, a, an equal worth. Uh, there, you know, every human being has value. And so it wasn't a matter of of a, a kind of status that you could lose. You have dignity whether people recognize it or not. And so as people turned against the norms and you know the, the values of honor, um, they began to claim dignity. And the idea was that, you know, it doesn't matter what, what somebody says about me. Um, I can ignore it rather than respond to it because I have this dignity no matter uh, what. I, and so, you know, you might be t- telling children in, in a culture of dignity, just ignore insults. Sticks and stones uh, break your bones, but words don't hurt you. So... You know, uh, this mm, distinction mm. between words and violence and how you handle them is, is big in dignity cultures too. And the idea then is that you, um, if you, if there are serious offenses against you uh, or violent offenses, um, um, crimes, uh, you know, violence, robbery, then you go to the police, you use the law 
there's no shame in using the courts. Whereas in honor cultures, that's often considered, you know, you know being beneath one's standing, you know, to turn to law, you should handle your conflicts yourself. And then the idea is to, you know, to ignore kind of a minor slights. You also respect the dignity of others in a dignity culture. So the idea is not to go around insulting other people. So what we started seeing is that there were elements of um, the complaints among uh, college activists, uh, the, the campus activists who were embracing what we, what we later came to call di- uh, victimhood culture, um, their the, 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 um, moral activity didn't align really with either of the other cultures. They seemed very sensitive to slight, certain kinds of slight, um, quick to perceive um, uh, offenses uh, against an ethnic group or other kinds of, of, of groups that were thought to be historically oppressed. Um, and but they weren't handling. Um, they but they were appealing to third parties, to appealing to others, uh, uh, broadcasting their complaints, asking university administrators to help them, and things like that. So it kind of combined elements of honor and dignity culture, the high sensitivity to slight that you see in honor cultures, with the um, the, the the appeal to third parties that you see in dignity cultures. Um, and so we saw that something new had arisen. We ended up calling it victimhood culture because it seemed that victimhood acted as a kind of moral status in the way that honor did in honor cultures. Actually, um, that uh, that people who were successfully claimed victimhood or, or perceived as victims um, were um, accorded almost a, a, you know really a, a kind of status that people were likely to take their side, um, not just in the in the conflict. You know, not just in any particular conflict where they've been victimized, but to see them as having kind of a, a moral authority to speak about issues and other, and other things like that. And then trying to, you know, analyze things, we found this this something that was really useful um, in understanding, you know, a lot of the contemporary conflicts on college campuses. And then we we wanted to to figure out how to explain it. Mm, mm. So when did you first... Um, uh, what was it that you first observed that led you to this uh, to become interested in this topic? What were the kinds of uh, signs that you saw uh, on your own campus, for example? Uh, when did you first become aware that there was some change in culture happening? Yeah, uh, was it 2014, Brad? That 2013. 2013. That uh, there's several events in short order. There was. And I, I forget which of these came first, but there was a sighting of an alleged Ku Klux Klansman, a uh, member of the, the racial terrorist group, the Ku Klux Klan on campus. And it turned out to be someone wearing, what was it, a bath towel? Yeah. And it struck us as incredibly credulous that people would be prepared to believe there was a, a Klan den at Oberlin College, which is a small liberal arts college, uh, a very... Uh, known for very progressive politics. Like uh, out of all the places you would expect to see people in Ku Klux Klan regalia, it would not be Oberlin. And there was around yeah. the same time period, a uh, someone had posted some racist or anti-Semitic remarks around campus, and that turned out not to be what it seemed either. It wasn't someone uh, genuinely campaigning for those beliefs so much as a progressive student trying to cause a stir and get some attention. And then there was Oberlin microaggressions. Brad, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was, I mean, so around the same time, we, we began, um, we, we found out about this Oberlin microaggressions website. So you would, uh, and I, I think, I don't think we had heard the term microaggression before. Right. And, uh, and yeah, and students were, were posting these kinds of complaints. So this was one of the first things, like, so a microaggression which you know, it, it's it's kind of quickly become something people, <laughs> a lot of people are used to, uh, or, although people who haven't heard about it might still be be sort of shocked by it. Um, it seemed bizarre mm-hmm. at first the, the idea that that you know, so I mean, to call something, so there were these slights, and the idea is that uh, it was a slight against maybe a racial group or an ethnic group. So a student, um, one student posted that uh, she overheard her professor at the gym saying to someone else, oh, I'm, I'm glad my husband and I both have blue eyes, so our child will have blue eyes. And, and, she, and, and the comment was, I don't want casual racism from my professors. So this was, you know, like thought to be a microaggression. The idea was that there were these constant little slights that were actually harming um, 
minorities uh, by hearing them. And uh, so it's an aggression because it actually is almost like like violence against you. Um, and people were, were posting these things. Um, and, you know, the very idea of micro is that it's very small. So this is kind of what we, we were trying to understand is why why in this kind of new moral system where people are being told not to ignore small things, but to, um, but to magnify them, right, and to, to concentrate on them and broadcast them. And um, wh- whether that's right or wrong, it was something that was different um, and, and something we, we wanted to understand. Yeah, he spoke mm. earlier of the... This- moral culture of victimhood as we came to call it being something that we identify because it didn't really fit into either the honor or dignity frameworks we are familiar with from sociology of violence. And I think the microaggression catalogs are just a perfect example of that. And this hunting for slights that are small and verbal and maybe even completely unintentional, maybe unrecognized by the offender as being offenses. And the idea that these things are worth uh, de- dedicating websites and blogs to and having catalogs of and raising awareness of. Yes, it seems, seems to me to be connected also with the idea of kind of dog whistles um, that, uh, you know, when you make a statement, it's not, it shouldn't be taken as, at face value, but you should try to interpret what kinds of, what kind of signals it might be, secret signals it might be sending. I think that's somewhat connected also, right? Mm. Like like hidden codes in the Bible or something like that? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it goes the other way too. So I think like part of, of the claims that are made by activists are not only that there's some kind of, um, I, I, I've just, there's some kind of hidden meaning in what people say. So if, you, if I say, um, you're in a conversation and I ask, uh, you know, and I ask someone, where are you from? Which, as this is often listed as a, a microaggression. And, um, and it's, again, I, I can understand where it come where it can come off as a slight in, in what, in any way people, just sometimes, so people at least say that, um, you know, that a, say an Asian person or, or a Hispanic person might be talking to someone and they ask them where they, where they, where are you from? And you say, uh, Texas or Oregon or whatever, and they're there. They don't know where are you really from because they really want to know. Like, are you, are, you know, are you Chinese or are you Mexican? And um, mm-hmm. then the, implica- the implication is um, what they say. The implication is you don't belong here, rather than just somebody's curious about you, right? Um, and but but where are you from is is such a standard um, conversational question, you know, that it, it uh, to to label it as as kind of automatically offensive. Or to say it's offensive when you use it when you ask some people, but not other people, um, you know, seems to be re- really a, b- a big change in, in how we interpret things. And the idea is that uh, even if the person didn't intend it, this is what I what doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me as a as a claim about something to say that even though this isn't what the person means, this is somehow like what it really means or something, right? Like that it, it really means you don't belong here. That's what. Mm-hmm. And then there's also mm-hmm. kind of. What I thought of is similar in the other way is that um, is this thing lately where uh, if uh, you know so Ezra Klein wrote a, a piece in um, in Vox defending these comments of of the New York, New York Times um, board member Sarah Jung who had written all these kind of um, uh, anti-white comments and he was saying well like well, he gave his example like that there had been a hashtag kill all men and he said well kill all men really means I, w- it, I wish things sucked less for women. So on the one hand, like the, the, the harsh kind of hate speech statement of the activists are, are said to really mean something, you know, benign. And, and then the ordinary comments of, of people in conversations are, are, are said to mean something sin- sinister. So there is this kind of you know, idea of hidden meanings. Um, yes, there's this very bizarre double standards happening where the meaning of what you say is dependent on who is saying it rather than what the actual content of the speech is. Um, and uh, this leads me, I get into all kinds of, um, uh, when I get into discussions with activists on Twitter, I find that as a result, um, the conversations really quickly come back to how to define me, who I actually am racially, culturally, etc. Because they don't, 
uh, they don't know how to respond to what I'm actually saying as an, the argument I'm making or the statement I'm making before they can parse who I am. And um, uh, so, you know, it always degenerates into this kind of discussion about identity and um, very often with, um, uh, very often it, it devolves into an argument over whether, because I'm, I'm half uh, British and half Indian, whether I can be said to be white or not. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I live in India. I'm a, in the Parsi bag. I'm a Parsi. I don't feel particularly white. Um, but I also look European. And uh, so it quickly becomes a um, a demand to see my twenty three and me <laughs> analysis, um, which which is which is crazy, and it's also very hard to avoid getting drawn into those kinds of discussions because it's it's um, I think it's very difficult to hear people telling you that you um, are not. Uh, that you know your claims about who you are are false, because that's such a basic part of your honesty as a person. So as soon as they get into this, you can't possibly be half Indian. Can you prove your father was actually Indian, etc.? Um, I get drawn in, sucked into it every time, and we we um, drift very far away from the content um, of what we were discussing. It's as though, you know, content is not interpretable until you can place the person and define their identity. I think that fits in with, uh, with some of the, uh, you know, with, uh, with this idea of, of um, victimhood culture. Don't you think, Jason, uh, that's like, it's like that you're, they're looking for, to, they're trying to find out her status, right? Yeah. They, when all your questions of what's right and wrong and who's deserving or undeserving depend around parsing people into groups and you know, seeing which group is most oppressed and which is most privileged, yeah, that seems mm -hmm. to be the most important information to get in any sort of interaction. Uh, your right to speak even or to have an opinion will depend on where, where you stand in, in that perceived hierarchy of moral worth with those most privileged at the bottom. And it's also a very uh, insular American hierarchy, I feel like most caste systems, it's it's <laughs> local to that specific culture, and mm -hmm. has has very little meaning outside of that very specific culture of the U.S. And I think even that specific culture of the of the college campus. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd like to just return to that. Um, um, could you? So you in the book you talk about how this culture particularly flourishes on small U.S. college campuses. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, about the connection between how campus culture has changed and uh, mm -hmm. how that is connected with uh, this new phenomenon. Yeah, well, we see a lot of trends in U.S. campus life over the past few decades, and there are several we think contribute to this. One is the return of a um, sort of in loco parentis doctrine of the university being a caretaker to the students and a parental figure to the students. And alongside that shift has come a great increase in the size and scope of administrative authority. And the administration now impinges on daily life and regulates conduct and manages affairs to a much greater degree than in the relatively recent past. And we believe this helps foster a kind of moral dependence. We think that the structure of having this ready access to an authority who will intervene and set policies for all manner of interpersonal issues, it creates incentives for people to complain the loudest and to handle their conflicts through complaint rather than other more direct measures, such as you know, just tolerating it for one thing or talking it out with the person who offended you or going your separate ways. When there's that 
administration one can turn to and demand policies from that becomes an attractive option for a lot of people. Mm. And I guess the incentives are also misaligned also for the administrators too, uh, because if you are the diversity officer or um, your job is justified by the amount of, I guess, racism and oppression and other issues that you can find on campus. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're encouraged to, um, to magnify complaints. You're the rat catcher right. and you need to find some rats. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's also what they all you know, call the hammer problem. You give someone a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And you create an organ of social control, uh, some sort of agency meant to police this kind of offense or that kind of offense. It's going to find work for itself, whether it's a witch hunter or a diversocrat or a secret policeman or something, you know, it could be a thing we consider benign and, and, and necessary too, but it's part of how bureaucracies and institutions work. Once it's created for this purpose, it serves the purpose of keeping itself in business. Yeah, I was just saying, I think that um, this is also one of the reasons why this is important. Um, there's, so there's sometimes the reaction when we talk about this stuff. Um, you know, this is just, this is just left-wing campus activists. They don't, you know, they don't have, um, you know, much power or support outside, um, you know, a small part of the university. And I think people are um, people are imagining it's just the same sort of thing it was 20 years ago, right? There were there were these kinds of um, extremist views on campus. Most people, even on the you know on the left, didn't pay much attention to it. Um, even you know outside the university, it didn't really dominate the. You know, there were there were some you know there were these uh, war, wars about political correctness and some free speech issues in the 90s. But now I think. One of the one of the differences is that there are all these um, you know these offices on campuses, diversity offices, and uh, and um, you know women's centers, and uh, you know it, it just t- tons of people, um, you know, of bureaucrats who are geared toward um, promoting you know what they call you know what they're calling diversity and and dealing with um, a, a, you know in racial offenses and and similar kinds of offenses on campus. They hold workshops that uh, that um, where uh, this kind of uh, new ideology uh, gets propagated. So you know, while people in the outside world may ne- many people may even still never have heard of a microaggression, you have the University of California, you know, like giving a microaggression workshop for faculty member, listing all these these things that would really would seem bizarre to a lot of people outside. That that to say, you know, as I mentioned before, where you where are you from? But the, the idea that to say um, oh, I think the most qualified person should get the job or uh, all these kinds of things are microaggressions and labeling. I mean, what in some cases are just pretty ordinary political opinions, even as microaggressions. Mm. Um, and this this and so it's it's not only um, not only does it is, is it coming to dominate the campuses and, and things like, um, you know, it, now it, many campuses making it easy to report microaggressions like microaggressions of your professors and they investigate what's happened uh, and and uh, and also spilling over to the, the larger society with people um, you know, really beginning to adopt it uh, in, in corporations. So in corporations then, you know, uh, understandably want an environment that is, um, uh, you know, free of, of harassment and, and, uh, and racial division and things like that. But who are they going to bring in to give a talk? And they bring in someone who is kind of steeped in this this victimhood culture, this left wing ideology? Who then they come in and teach about microaggressions? They come in and teach maybe that that uh, you know um, you know you you can't be racist against whites or, or or sexist against men or or they you know and they may 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 come to teach what's really kind of a, a um, at least a, a far left and unconventional view because this is this is you know who has those kinds of of jobs. And it's not even something. It's not something that will promote racial harmony and uh, and prevent harassment. It's it's likely something that's you know um, that's causing causing more problems. I think I'm a little more cynical about the corporations. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I I suspect their aim is just to cover their own asses in case they get sued. <laughs> <laughs> to be able to say, well, we told I them, you know, we held the seminar. <laughs> Which wouldn't be a bad thing if it were just a matter of, uh, you know, I mean, 
yeah, I, I, I agree that they don't have um, some you know deep concern either way. Um, but that's what you know. That's why it's happening. You know, if they were simply, um, you know, if they're trying to keep from getting sued for sexual harassment or whatever, you know, you can imagine that leading to good things, even if it's, it's cynical, right? Like, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, one way to not get yeah. sued is to not actually have the sexual harassment going on. But um, and, and and not all of that is necessarily, uh, you know, bad, it doesn't necessarily have a bad effect. But like, yeah, if if they if the people they turn to 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 teach. Um, you know, to come in and teach their employees are are people who, you know, hold. It, it would be like, it, you know, it would it would be like in the days of of witch hunts where there were people who were experts in in witches, right? So they they really went around and you know, so somebody could present themselves as, oh, I know all of, you know, I know all about how to how to find witches and how to deal with them. Um, and, and, the, and there, it's really, and it's sort of a scam, even though they might be true believers in it, but, um, but the, the, these people have kind of new instruments of detection and, and ideas about, um, offenses. They might be then hired by people who kind of naively think that they, they must know something or by people who, you know, uh, simply, uh, I, people want me to do something about witches. So I, this is who I hire, right? And that's, that's sort of the, the cynical corporation thing, but there's, that kind of parallel to it, like people who become experts in something when there's not any, I mean, there, there's not scientific packing for most of these things. There, there's not any kind of, you know, that said, you know, they, they've quickly adopted, you know, ideas about microaggression and other things without any evidence that like say, say that um, training about microaggressions sort of uh, promotes uh, racial harmony, right. Or, or, or these, these kinds of things. They're just, they're just trendy ideas. Um, so I want you to ask about whether you feel there have actually been some positive developments connected with this shift in culture. Um, and uh, yeah, let's start there. Do you feel there have been some positive developments and changes in social attitudes? Well, in, in the sense that some of what we're seeing with what we call victimhood culture is, and you know, most of it, most of what we have identified by that term, I, I'm not particularly fond of, but it's something that is an exaggeration of previous trends. And the trends themselves, uh, until they reached that point of absurdity, were good. I mean, it's there's the saying in medicine: the dose makes the poison. And there's mm-hmm. various things you you can do badly to have too little or too much of. And so the general trend towards being more empathetic towards other people and understanding and Exercising some thought and restraint in how you talk because people from different backgrounds might not interpret things the same way or um, or even being aware of potential foibles. Like, is it true that men tend to talk over women more? Well, if, if it is, it's something to look out for and I don't want to be rude to anybody. So that's sort of... I feel totally you know. talked over. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. I, I'm joking. I, I know. <laughs> But, you know, the idea of being being polite and, and thoughtful about that kind of thing, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. And so the problem is it, it goes beyond just being thoughtful and polite to a kind of paranoia. And it's also coupled with the idea that you don't have to be polite to certain people because they don't deserve it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the critics of our term victimhood culture, and it's been a controversial term for good and for ill, um, said we should maybe call it empathy culture, but... There's no empathy towards whites or males or anyone else deemed as privileged. Uh, you're, you're, it's open season on, on certain classes of people who are, who are seen as morally worse. So if we're just talking a kind of overall being more thoughtful and polite and sensitive to differences, I would, I would be all for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Part of the difficulty is uh, a lot of the, a lot of what we're talking about is is certainly the extreme of victimhood culture. We do talk a little bit about, you know, how does how does this affect things more broadly? Like just the, you know, aside from the the radical version on campuses, you know, just people's tendency to um, to valorize victimhood, and and again to the to the extent that it's just a concern about people actually being victimized, and that that's become more prominent, then um, then that's you know that's good. Um, you know, so um, I don't. Um, so there is a 
it, it, things are always a matter of degree. And, you know, as Jason was saying that, uh, you know, in smaller degrees, they're not always that bad. I think with all of these moral cultures, they're, they're always a matter of degree. So, you know, when we, when we talk about an honor culture, we're talking about um, an, an extreme situation where honor acts as, as, a, as a very important kind of status, like one of maybe the most important kind of status among a group. Honor is always somewhat important if it's, you know, it's not as if people usually, um, you know, um, denigrate bravery or, or valorize cowardice, you know, so even in other settings, it's, it's you know, generally good to, to be seen as, as courageous or brave, but it's about extremes. Like, does that, you know, how, how much is that important compared to other kinds of values like kindness or, 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 or empathy or whatever? And I think that, the, and the same thing is, is true here, um, simply trying to help victims, um, it, you know, it is, uh, is good. Um, but um, this kind of, um, this kind of situation where you're dividing, dividing the world up between the victims and the privileged and, um, and, and, and assessing everything morally that way, even in terms of who, who gets to talk, who gets to, you know, uh, um, insult one another um who's in the wrong that's the the problem also it's kind of in terms of good things it's we we were one of the things that we're really initially interested in and seeing like the complaints about microaggression is um the extent to which people start perceiving small offenses when there aren't as many bigger offenses so um we, we were kind of thinking about um Emil Durkheim, who uh, was a sociologist, classical sociologist in the 1800s and early 1900s writing, and so uh, about deviance and crime and other things. But Durkheim said that um, in, a, in a society of saints, there would still be sinners because the idea was that, um, is that uh, in the society of saints where people were all um, pretty good, right, or, or, or very exceptional um, morally, there would still be, they would then turn to little minor offenses and, and uh, things that wouldn't have been considered uh, very bad in another group, those would be, uh, be, be focused on. So the idea is that there would always be like crime and punishment in a sense, right? Or, 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 or deviance and social control. Um, and so when one of the things was like, uh, we were saying like on o- at Oberlin College, people were highly concerned about racism and there wasn't, you know, like a, a white supremacist group like the Ku Klux Klan there, but they were quick to perceive those things maybe because, because the major, uh, you know, you know, major and overt acts of racism weren't there. And so that's a good thing, right? So if, if, if to the extent that this is coming out because of, of progress, that's good too. But it, but, uh, you know, the worry is that it might be misdirected um, and uh, and you know sort of reverse things in a sense that you know give rise to um, to new extremism on the other side, um, which I think is is true with with the alt right and other kinds of uh, you know trends in American politics that this kind of this culture is is threatening to um, threatening to reverse a lot of the progress that we've made. So you were talking a little bit there about the the um, theoretical philosophical underpinnings of your work and. Um, I noticed that you talk also about uh, Donald Black's ideas um, that formed part of the background to influence your own conception of this. Um, could you say more about that? Sure. Donald Black's a theoretical sociologist from America, and he got to start studying uh, the behavior of the police in the, in the late 1960s. It was actually part of a large multi-state study sponsored by the Johnson administration at the time as a reaction to a lot of the civil unrest there had been, lots of anti-police riots in black urban areas uh, resulting from encounters with the cops and police brutality and things like that. And so he studied how cops actually did their job and how law was actually enforced at the level of one case to another. And that led him to develop a sociological theory of law that looked at how situational or or relationship factors between the parties in a case, such as, you know, how closely they're related or whether they're equal or unequal, how those sorts of things influenced the amount of law brought to bear against the alleged deviant. And from that, it mushroomed out into a larger theory of 
what we call social control, handling deviance or defining and responding to deviance. Another term we might use is conflict management, how people express and handle their grievances. And so the idea is people have this enormous variety of ways we handle our differences and express our irritations or condemnations of things. And so you try to look at what social conditions and what relationship factors lead to one kind of social control versus another, why you get you know, feuding or, or vengeance killings versus calls to the police and lawsuits and trials, or why you get people just going their separate ways versus talking things out and negotiating. And so that's the tradition we were both steeped in, and we both carried into our own work, Bradley on genocide, myself on suicide, and that we then applied to this topic of, of moral culture and conflict on campuses. From the viewpoint of this this line of theory, these moral cultures are the outcome of what's going on at the ground level where these social conditions lead people to tend to have certain kinds of conflicts and to handle them in certain ways. Mm. Mm. Um, so I also wanted to ask about um, diversity training. Um, specifically for people who've never actually been part of a workshop of that kind. Um, could you tell me what actually happens in these sorts of training sessions? Um, I've never been to one. Um, when I read about <laughs> them, uh, they seem to, I mean, I guess they vary a lot. Uh, you, um, they, uh, but, you know, whether, you know, they deal with, they seem to you know, frequently deal with microaggression, um, these other kinds of things. I read about one, um, I mean, it, sometimes it's very, you know, very kind of, of bizarre things. Um, I was uh, was reading a, uh, something um, about, um, um, there, there was a, a training somewhere, I'll look it up, uh, where they were, um, asking people it was kind of a classic thing i mean i've done it before but it didn't have anything to do with diversity training but you know kind of the the scenario where you're going to be shipwrecked or something you're going on a ship or who we can you know going into space to save uh uh, um you know because the earth is is you know is dying and who do you save and who do you prioritize um but uh this one um was um yeah so this was in the new york times uh just um uh, yesterday, um, or a couple of days ago, August thirtieth, um, this article on um, who would who who'd be on your spaceship? A school and a school exercise backfires in Ohio. So in this one, um, they asked if you know. So Earth was doomed for destruction, and this is uh, and, and they uh, asked um, uh, asked students to uh, you know they said they they could have twelve. There were there were twelve potential spaceship passengers who were going to leave the Earth and right I guess start a, another colony somewhere, um, and the the passengers were and you know just to read some of them a militant African American medical student, a Hispanic clergyman who was against homosexuality, an Asian orphan twelve year old boy, a homosexual male professional athlete, and it goes on like that right it's like listing people's identities and and it, sometimes a couple other things about them, and then the idea was um, I think that. Um, they had uh, they had to cut one of the people. So who will they cut, right? So like, who are you prioritizing among among those people? Well, this became uh, it's it's in the news because <laughs> because it um, people complained about it. It, it backfired, and uh, but but this is um, this is the kind of and then it's thought to be offensive, which is kind of interesting about some of these things too. Sometimes they end up being being criticized by the by the same group of people who. Um, are, you know, encouraging this stuff because because anything can become offensive, right? Even from the activists. So there's we, we talk about purity spiral, spirals where um, the the activists turn on one another. But um, the idea is that it's always in these terms, like you're being offensive to groups or something. But it's um, but a lot of the diversity training that's an extreme kind of thing. But it, it, but it, it's uh, I think because they were deciding whether to save people or not, it, it actually offended people. But but just to kind of you know, it's always this, you know, pointing to people's I- identities as um, as victims or the privileged. I know they draw from 
some, um, you know, so, uh, sociologist and other uh, kind of social scientists who, who talked about privilege and the knapsack of privilege and all these things. And you're supposed to up and you're supposed to recognize which identities you have that are privileged and which, um, you know, which are, are, are not. So you might be thought of to, to you know, think through yourself as, uh, okay, so I'm, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, if, if a person is, is, you know, white, male, um, and cisgendered and, and straight and, uh, Christian, you know, then the idea is like, there are all these identities that are privileged, right? But you could, on the other hand, if you were, uh, black and, and gay and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and all the, all these other uh, Muslim or, or whatever. So, you would be you know, disadvantaged on those categories. And of course, a lot of people are, are mixed on one or the others, but it, it's th- like to take this collection of identity and to analyze it in, in terms of, yeah, are, are you privileged or not? And as I think you're, you, you know, you were mentioning before, um, it, I mean, one of the problems with this is that, well, it's, it, some of it is rooted in uh, um, the United States and, and the ethnic and other kinds of relations here, but also just these, these identities and, and our people are pointing to are very different, especially when you look worldwide at things like, you know, so why, uh, you know, I mean, you know, um, you know, the idea that Muslim, being Muslim, right. Is, is, is a victim identity when, you know, there are, um, you know, you know, plenty of situations around the world where Muslims might be the oppressors. Right. So it's, it's, it's very, um, it's really weird if you don't start from their assumptions, um, uh, you know, but but the idea is that all of the idea that's that's given is often that all these identities, all these kinds of oppression, are the same. They're one kind of oppression, so that's why it doesn't end up looking very complicated to them. And they don't make you know they don't say, well, oh, actually, you know, Asians uh, have higher incomes than whites in the United States, higher average incomes, and so maybe even if they're maybe even if they're disadvantaged in some way, you might point, well, actually, you know. Um, it, it's not exactly, uh, you know, uh, such a, a victim identity, but that's never, that's never done. Or, you know, you don't say like, that's, that's one thing too. You're, you're, it's, it's not a, it's not a scientific thing where you're trying to proceed to understand the world. You know, it, it, you know, so people might say also, I mean, another thing is, you know, the fact that, um, blacks are overrepresented in, in prison compared to whites would be looked at as, um, a kind of disadvantage on the part of blacks, but then you wouldn't turn to say, well, men are overrepresented in prisons compared to women and say that that's an example of, uh, you know, of, of a lack of privilege from men, right? It's never, so the, the criteria that are given for, to, to try to prove, you know, or, um, the different kinds of disadvantage aren't even consistent. Um, but it, but the, the idea is that, you know, they know from the outset that there's oh, there's this uh, these di- multiple kinds of oppression and they're all connected. Uh, right, so, mm. so how have you? I mean, have you seen that spilling over into um, personal relationships, um, to things that are happening in your classroom or interactions that you're having also outside the university with friends, with family. Um, in professional situations, have you seen a shift there that's 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 affected those kinds of those kinds of relationships and conversations? Um, I'm trying to think of examples. Um, m- most of my circle isn't isn't into the into the competitive victimhood thing per se. I do know, you know like even my family, who isn't really much exposed to this, they have some vague awareness that I, I wrote a book about it, but. You know, academic books are dull. Most people don't want to read them. There is sort of a sense, though, of um, my my family, who who you know all all are white, know that there's they're not at the there's a lot of grievance towards them, and mm. there's. Especially among you know, some of my older relatives who are now you know, retiring from working in you know, like for the power company or some other job, talk about being told basically don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out because you're stale pale male, and that's <laughs> so they they perceive some of that stuff at that level, but 
in terms of like the uh, jockeying for identity position, I don't see as much of that in my immediate circle, but you know, my wife's Korean and my kids will be half Korean, half white. So it's something that's definitely on my mind of whether they'll get pigeonholed and be forced to choose, which is the best identity for me to deal with. Um, Am I going to get the rednecks picking on them for being Korean and then the progressives picking on them for being white? I don't know. Uh, Well, my experience is certainly you can, you can enjoy oppression. You can enjoy being vilified by both sides. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> the the, com- the, com- the common yeah. crooked timber of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bizarre thing, like with like you were talking about earlier, with reactions to you on on on, on Twitter. That it, it seems. I mean, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, there are. Uh, you know, is it? I mean. People are, are um, when you say, "Well, I'm, I'm half, I'm half Indian." People don't believe that, right? Or, or they or maybe they is it, or is it, is think, it they don't believe that you're half Indian, or they don't think that that counts, or, or um, what? Is I it? think they believe it, but they don't like. They feel that it would give me a kind of moral status that they don't want to award me. Uh, if we were already having an argument, right. they disagree with my opinions. Um, so, you know, I mean, recently there was a quite absurd sort of conversation that I was having with an activist. Um, and I should never have got drawn into this. Um, Helen Pluckrose, my uh, um, co-host, and ev- who is, hosts every other um, episode of this podcast with me, uh, she is very careful never, ever to rise to this. So she never responds by saying, well, actually, you know, I'm bisexual, I'm disabled, and I have an Indian daughter. So she could lay out a whole suite of victim cards. And she probably won't like the fact that I even said this. Um, but she never, she never stoops to that sort of level of debate, whereas I find myself drawn in all the time. And I find myself playing this kind of game. It's almost irresistible. Um, and, you know, the kind of absurd conversation was that the activist felt that, um, you know, I had no right to talk about things because to all intents and purposes, I'm white because I look white to her. She also looks white, but she insisted very strongly that she has never been mistaken for white in her life, um, which, <laughs> you know, just cannot cannot possibly be true. She has a, looks completely European. Um, but has mm-hmm. uh, Arab ancestry or mixed Arab ancestry. I can't remember exactly. Um, but it was very interesting to me the way that that became bound up in kind of status. It was very important to her to emphasize, even though in her case it seemed almost ludicrous, that nobody would ever believe that she was um, of, had white European uh, um, parentage. Although she's a pale-skinned person with mid-brown hair and blue eyes, uh, you know she. But she's so she, virtuous. No one could mistake her for a white. I mean, you know. Yes, exactly. Because she has this just kind of. Exactly, she has this kind of moral aura of non-whiteness <laughs> carried around <laughs> with her, um, and um, uh, that's uh, that's quite kind of extraordinary to me. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I have to remind myself just not to get drawn into this. Um, and it's very, it's very hard uh, to do. And I think that is one of the problems with this whole um, victimhood culture thing is that you can't contain it to your own side. Bradley, have you noticed sort of repercussions in wider, uh, in in your wider life? In practical repercussions? Yeah, on, I mean, on the campus especially, and um, and I think it's it's spreading broader, more uh, more broadly. I mean, um, I thought when I first started talking about um, this stuff after after we we first got some attention about it um, in 2015, I people asked about you know what about your own campus, and I said, oh, uh, you don't really see it here. You see it at, at the uh, at the elite schools, which is kind of where it started. Um, um, Yale and, and, and Oberlin and so on. But uh, we had an incident 
a couple of years ago. I guess this was was two thousand spring of of uh, twenty uh, sixteen or seventeen. But they um, uh, Ben Ben Shapiro, who uh, you know is a, a very very kind of conservative like right right wing commentator, goes around to college campuses. Um, was was coming to our campus, invited by the the Young American Young America Foundation or Young Americans for Freedom. They both use both those names, which is a an old kind of campus conservative group. They brought they brought Ben Shapiro in, and he was giving a talk, which was called something like um, uh, it, w- it was called um, when diversity becomes a problem, and it was actually a pretty um, a pretty you know the, the title's kind of provocative, but it was it was a talk about there being different kinds of diversity, and he was arguing that yeah race you know he said racial and ethnic diversity are neutral there you know it's it's not morally you know it, you know it depends on how 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 it gets there, um, and that uh, it's good to have viewpoint diversity, and he was saying that it's bad though to have um, you know attacks on free speech or I think something like that, but. But just the t- the fact that he was coming and giving a talk called "When Diversity Becomes a Problem," um, there, there, it's caused a, an uproar among among certain, some activists. And there was um, what ended up happening is that the 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 president of our our university of Cal State LA canceled the talk like the week uh, you know a week before or, or a few days before it was supposed to happen, um, and. Uh, you know, said that he would re- he was going to reschedule it for and, and for so they, for another event where he could be debated, where, where Shapiro could be debated, so he'd be part of a panel or something. Which mm-hmm. you know, if um, which is completely like co- contrary to, to First Amendment law in the United States. This is a public university, and you can't engage in viewpoint discrimination. And and, and part of viewpoint discrimination is trying to dilute a viewpoint by saying it has to. You know, you know, it can't be given without a, a response or some uh, something. Um, and so he was. So when the president canceled the talk, um, fire the, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and others protested. And he reversed himself really quickly because it was uh, going to be, be a pretty serious violation of uh, the law as it now stands. Um, but it, it's um, and then there was kind of this mob outside. I wasn't there. I was watching the the thing from from home uh, um, online, and you know, just a, a, a mob of people, students and fac and faculty, but uh, and I guess people from outside maybe too, blocking the entrances of the place. And so, you know, it couldn't even fill up because the entrances were blocked, and then he had to be escorted out in secret. And you think about that that kind of thing is is um, really scary, like the idea that somebody can't come and give a talk. And this is. You know, this was Ben Shapiro, whatever you, you know, think of him. I mean, it's not really, um, not necessarily a big fan, but um, he was, he's not even Milo Yiannopoulos. It wasn't that kind of, maybe even that mm, level of yeah. offensiveness or certainly not somebody like, right, like Richard Spencer or, 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 you know, a white nationalist. He was somebody who was actually, um, you know, opposed to, to Trump at the time, you know, and, uh, and, but, um, but you know, uh, just as someone who's very conservative in terms of American politics, like on on the on the right, but uh, but it, it it's um but the fact that you know the idea that that person shouldn't be allowed on on campus, and we we should be able, if if the university won't stop it, then we can go you know block the entrances and and prevent people from hearing it because they're they're seeing speech as violence as a as a kind of violence, and this is a serious threat to free speech, and I, I think like. That is is really important. As far as spilling over outside, it, I, mean, I guess my thought is more that I'm, I'm I've been surprised lately at how much people. Um, I mean, a lot of people sort of don't keep track of all this stuff, but a lot of these ideas are kind of uh, um, spreading, and people don't necessarily realize how radical they are. So people who are are kind of on the left, maybe, and you know, and and, and certainly, um, you know. And concerned about um, about about social justice and and uh, you know and racial reconciliation and, and these kinds of things are, are often adopting these these ideas or or not maybe not adopting them in full but they're very sim- sort of sympathetic to them just because it's it's kind of that you know um, they they just see it as addressing those problems those those issues that they're interested in and it's it, it sort of surprised me how fast this some of this is becoming mainstream. You know, so that I mean, I mentioned Sarah Jong earlier, the the you know who became recently a, a, um, a new board member of the New York Times. 
who had written all, you know, all these, these tweets, uh, cancel white men and, and, and all, all these uh, anti-white tweets, which I, the New York Times didn't embrace it. They said that she wasn't going to write that anymore. But a lot of people who are mainstream journalists were, were outright defending it uh, and saying, well, no, this, this, isn't, this isn't even racism. If, you, if it's against white people, it doesn't count as racism. And and those are becoming popular ideas, even among people that you know, people I know and, and talk to. Let's so let's uh, close by um, thinking of some ways in which we can resist being sucked into this kind of culture um, and uh, create a, a healthier atmosphere, both on campus and more widely in society and in dealings with each other. Sure. So. Um, uh, Jason, you can be gloomy if you want, and uh, maybe Bradley, you can be less gloomy and offer some suggestions. Well, I mean, the way we look at a lot of the trends we're, we've been calling victimhood culture and that we write about in our book, we, we see them as problematic. We think a very high sensitivity to slight coupled with a high degree of, of moral dependence on you know, complaining to authorities or to someone's boss to get them fired or to, you know, Twitter admin to get somebody banned and that sort of thing. It tends to breed conflict and it tends to breed collective conflict and a tendency to see everything in light of racial, ethnic, and other categories and to see a world full of hostility and slight. And we think it would be good to reduce some of these trends and we thought of some about ways you could go about reducing them. So one way to try to mitigate or stay out of this, this victimhood spiral is you know, start by keeping your own house in order, uh, work on your own security as a person. I mean, there's things, steps we could all take to try to be a little bit more uh, secure in our own dignity. We don't have to rise to every insult. We don't have to meet every accusation of privilege by listing all our hardships to prove that the other person's wrong. And you know, we can learn to be more charitable when we are not sure what someone means to say, we could assume the best and give them a chance to explain themselves. And you know, there's various wisdom out there from ancient uh, wisdom to modern practical advice to you know, books on psychotherapy on how you can try to make yourself a little more resilient in this way at a collective level. Another thing we can do is try to discourage the, the high level of moral dependence that leads people to you know, so readily try to get somebody fired or banned from a campus or from a social media platform. One way to, go about reducing that dependency might be to start at a very young age. People in the States talk a lot these days about so-called helicopter parenting. I don't know of the any hard numbers on how prevalent it is, but it definitely seems from casual observation, like recent cohorts of children have much less free time, less time to play with themselves, less time to explore and manage their own affairs than children of, of a generation past. And they might be losing some of their ability to manage conflicts, to deal with setbacks, brush off slights, and other skills one learns through that kind of unstructured, unsupervised activity. So we could try to support the free-range parenting movement as a way to increase resilience in the new generation coming up. On campuses, one thing we can do is just to try to scale back the involvement of administrative authority. If we could get the administration left in, less involved in policing words and thoughts and managing people's slights and grievances, that might be a step towards reducing people's incentives to notice things that offend them and to exaggerate offenses so that every everything becomes a matter of major oppression. Mm. Brad, do mm. you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think uh, it's easy in seeing this, uh, it, it, you know, 
some of these things have been happening so fast. So, so we, you know, we just heard of, of the term microaggression five years ago, uh, and we did, and almost everybody hadn't, uh, hadn't heard of it before then. And then it, you know, suddenly becomes popular, and some there are, you know, uh, you know, people are, you know, getting their mechanisms for reporting them on campus, and and it, and it seems so fast. Uh, but I think in terms of um, if 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 there's a reason for hope, and I think there is, um, it's not, you know, it has to do with the fact that these, um, it, it has a cause. It, it's not that, that you know, people simply, um, it has a cause and it has a logic. So see, people didn't simply go crazy. You know, I know like from the out, that's one of the reasons we were interested in it is from, you know, from the out, outside of a, a moral culture, what people are doing, you know, um, might look look just uh, incomprehensible or crazy, but when you you understand there is a logic and and people may be able to be persuaded out of it then um also I think the fact that this it really is still um a marginal culture for the most part it's spreading and going even to corporations high places, but it's not really in its extreme form embraced by most people and I think as 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 there becomes more awareness of it, there may be um uh, you know, more efforts to push back and, and to remedy it. I mean, I just think of just really prominent people. I mean, it, it, this gets framed often as a as a right-left thing because people on the left are embracing the extreme form. But uh, 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 Barack Obama in a recent talk was, uh, uh, I mean, was talking, um, you know, said, um, you know, made the statement that, um, you know, if you um, if you can't do that, um, you know. So if you insist on if you insist that those who aren't like you because they're white or they're male, that somehow there's no way they can understand what I'm feeling. That somehow they lack standing to speak on certain matters. He says, you know, he's, he's saying you can't you can't do that. You can't change people's minds and make progress. So he was condemning really this victimhood culture idea that um, that people have a certain standing to talk simply because they're members of a victimhood group. And there are others who are are speaking out. On these issues too, um, I'm just thinking of also. Uh, there's a book coming out tomorrow, "The Coddling of the American Mind" by by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, which um, will. Um, I mean, I think so. In, a, in you know, in addition to our book, I think we, you know, we were writing we were writing about this stuff um, uh, about a about a year before uh, Lukianoff and Haidt's uh, Atlantic uh, article came out, but it's very, um, you know. Um, but what they're what they're what they were pointing out there is um, just the harms, the psychological harms, and other harms that that are, are caused by it. And the book will have much more, um, you know, not but you know, besides microaggression, and I think we'll we'll focus some on, on helicopter parenting and other kinds of things, and 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 what we can do about it. And the fact that you have people like Height and Lukianoff writing about this. Um, you know, and 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 uh, you know, so you have you know, that book and our book and others, who you know, trying to understand it and not just uh, not and not just uh, you know, condemn it, even though we do condemn it. But it's you know, it's not it's not a matter of trying to get people riled up for a political movement or something like that. We're trying to understand this sociologically, what's happening and what can and and what can we do about it. And I think there are a lot of, of people doing that, and and um, so. Um, Maybe uh, maybe things will begin to change, and at least will um, some of the most extreme forms—the shutting down of speakers and, and universities and that kind of thing—maybe will um, will begin to to stop, and maybe we can even make progress, start making progress again um, toward um, toward racial re- reconciliation and 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 uh, and having more diversity without without more conflict. Mm. Well, that's a very cheerful note on which to end. Um, so uh, let me know how people can um, uh, can follow your your work. Um, so they can follow you on uh, Twitter, obviously. Um, at Social Geometer is uh, Jason's handle, and Bradley's handle is um, at. Bradley Sock Prof, am I right? Sorry, um, it's uh it's at Campbell Campbell So well it's Soch Prof so Campbell C A M P B E L L S O C like sociology mm-hmm. and then Prof like professor so Campbell okay Soch great prof. Campbell yes uh, Campbell Soch or Sock Prof I prefer Sock Prof oh perfect 
University. I was a search prof, but uh, uh, yeah, and we also have a, a blog um, called the Victimhood Report, which can be found at victimhoodculture.com, um, where we occasionally talk about. Uh, and the idea was that this is the Victimhood Report, so we'll talk about happenings uh, in the news and and how it relates to our book, and also uh, different at different times we have we have new thoughts. Uh, um, about stuff we've written about in the book that, that we share there. So that's at victim, victimhoodculture.com, and, and it's the, the Victimhood Report. Wonderful. I also have Thank a blog, geometer.com. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's just for the real sociology geeks. I talk a lot about sociological theory. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, both coming on. I will put all those details and also link for the, to the book uh, in the show notes. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.